Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. This podcast is graphic and deals with mature subject matter. You're listening to True Crime Chronicles. Things like this happen, you know, and cases go cold. And there's, there's, there's so many questions even now. It's a nightmare for everyone every day. You just don't forget that. There's no way. I think that she was murdered and I think I know who did it. For True Crime Chronicles, I'm Jessica Knoll. And I'm Will Johnson. So last week, we told you about the Icebox Murders, um, which was a bizarre case out of Houston. And this week, we're going to stay in Texas, move a little east to a smaller town in Texas. And and this case is maybe one of the strangest ones that we've covered so far. Yeah, I'm not sure if you can get any stranger than the Icebox Murders that we covered last week and told you about. But uh, this week is definitely a bizarre story. And it really isn't just about the original case. It's more about the investigation that happens and how incredibly weird it all gets. Uh, but Jessica, have you been to Texas? I have. I, I've been to San Antonio um, and, and a few of the airports, but not to this small town. All right. Well, as we hear from one of the people in this story, the reporter who we talked to, uh, Texas, like, God and football in East Texas is what it's all about. But I will tease you with the fact that this story gets into satanic cults, not something you hear about every day anywhere, and maybe especially in Texas. So at the time this happened in the early 90s, the story brought a lot of unwanted attention and press from all over the country to the town of Gilmer, Texas. Lexi Hudson covers local news for CBS 19 in nearby Tyler, Texas. The way people probably think of East Texas is, you know, it's piney trees and, and but, you know, it's you're, everything's right there. And that's kind of how Gilmer is. Everything is right there. The town square, uh, the downtown area, it's, it's a lot of history in the, in the whole town. So Gilmer is a small, quiet town about 90 minutes, two hours from Dallas. And the image that Lexi paints, the one you might be imagining, is probably just about right. So the video store is diagonal from the, you know, just the middle of everything. Gilmer's not that big. But back in 1992, on a January night, something really terrible happened in Gilmer that people still talk about today. And with the backdrop of that small town, everything clustered together around the main square, you might wonder why nobody sees what happens. But that's how the story goes. January 5th, 1992, Kelly Wilson is working at a local video store in her hometown. Kelly Wilson was just 17 at the time, a student at Gilmer High School. She was making some money on the side of the store. That night, Kelly's manager, Joe Wilson, is working alongside her. And there's a procedure to close. You have to do the deposits and get everything done. And so we got through about 8.30. So we left at 8.30, just thereabouts. And he gets in his car and she's getting in hers and goes to the bank, which is diagonal from the video store, you can see it from the door that she walked out of. Joe and Kelly say goodnight. Joe drives home. It's not until early the next morning that Joe gets a phone call from Kelly's mom. Philip Williams was working as a reporter at the nearby Longview News Journal when all this happened. 
The next morning, she called the store manager, my friend Joe Henry, and told him that Kelly had not come home the night before. And asked if she had said about going somewhere the night before. Well, she was supposed to go to a friend's house. The next day, um, the next day, Joe Henry, you know, is getting questions of where's Kelly? Did she stay at someone's house? Uh, you know, he, he doesn't know. There's a lot of questions. You know, where, where is Kelly Wilson? Eventually, Kelly's car is found at the video store where she was last seen. And her vehicle is seen in a video, you know, going through the bank and dropping off. And the, the deposit was made. But you can't see anything on the video. You know, who's, who's driving the car, if it e even is Kelly. There was some vague video of her car there, but apparently it was of such poor quality that nothing could be determined from it. And the first real sign that something's not right, the tires are slashed. Kelly's purse is found inside the car. Her keys are missing. This is when Gilmer Police Sergeant James Brown enters the picture. From the very beginning, he's determined to find out what happened to Kelly. I mean, dedicates his life to finding this girl from what he put out, you know, for everybody to know. By Tuesday morning, Sergeant Brown is reaching out to the local press to get the word out. I got a phone call from Police Sergeant James Brown, who said, I need some help. You can imagine the search crews, the flyers, even a billboard goes up over time. I mean, press conferences, there's, there's, you know, pointing fingers, there's investigation, there, it's a, it's a lengthy investigation. Joe Kelly had gotten to know Kelly pretty well while they worked at the video store together. He says she confided in him all the time. Yeah, she just had a lot going on at home, and it was just family drama that he thinks, or he hopes, at the end of the day, you know, that she just wanted to leave, and she just wanted to leave all the drama behind and get away. That's, that's his hope at the end of the day, is that she is somewhere, and she just wanted to restart and get away from all that family drama that she had. I would hope that she's somewhere and she just got fed up with everything, maybe with the family troubles or whatever it might have been, said, I'm just out of here. The month of January goes by in a blur. More weeks and more months, and eventually police are able to figure out who slashed Kelly's tires. A classmate of hers, he was convicted of a misdemeanor, I'm pretty sure, for slashing her tires. He admitted to it, but he says he, or he, he said at the time, you know, he knew nothing about Kill Kelly's disappearance. And he was just, you know, in the wrong place at the wrong time. Well, apparently they did investigate that to some extent. Um, it was an amazing coincidence, to say the least, assuming it's true, you know, that he slashes the girl's tire, she disappears, and he had nothing to do with it. But that's the first odd wrinkle in the story that's about to get a whole lot weirder. Over the next two years, from January 1992 to January 1994, Sergeant Brown stays on the case. For a young girl to go missing on a quiet Sunday night in the town he's sworn to protect and for no one to know anything about it doesn't make any sense. But at the same time Brown is working on Kelly's case, there's another investigation going on, and it's about to collide with Kelly's disappearance in a way that Gilmer residents will never forget. Child Protective Services is looking into the Kerr family, they live on the outskirts of town in trailers and tar paper shacks, and there are reports of child abuse. Children are brought in and questioned, and a special outside prosecutor who specializes in child abuse cases is also brought in. And then, almost two years to the date that Kelly Wilson disappeared, a bombshell. Sergeant Brown and seven others, members of the Kerr family and a few friends, are indicted for the sexual assault, kidnapping, and murder of Kelly Wilson. He, at the end of the day, ends up getting indicted along with these other people. But it's the details of the indictment that rock the little town of Gilmer, and news crews come in from around the country. 
Well, supposedly, uh, when the indictments came down, it was said that a satanic cult had gotten hold of her. It's rumors that there's, you know, a cult and that she's been abducted and murdered. And this is two years later. And he's the one that gets, you know, the, the fingers pointed at him with these other people that came out of nowhere. The town was divided between people who thought the police sergeant, Brown, was as guilty as Charles Manson and those who thought he was as innocent as Snow White. No one can believe what they're hearing. Brown, a 14-year police veteran who is known for his clear sense of right and wrong, he spent untold hours working on Kelly's case, is now charged with taking part in rituals, torture, and killing Kelly Wilson. In East Texas, it's, you know, God and football are king. And the fact that this satanic cult and, you know, you, you're looking at somebody in the position that he was, he's a sergeant, and you're questioning, you know, right, and you're questioning who who's pretty much keeping your town safe, or supposed to be at least. It's a lot of telephone, and it's a lot of, you know, the ladies sitting in the the beauty shop, you know, discussing things. We well, can imagine how sensational it was. They said this satanic cult had gotten this girl, and and uh, the one of the eight defendants who was charged was the police sergeant who had led the investigation of it for two years. And you can see why that would attract national attention. All of a sudden, this tiny East Texas town is in the national spotlight, and it's not just about the disappearance of a young woman. I mean, we were inundated with national media attention in 1994. Everybody from the New York Times and the Chicago Tribune to CNN, a whole bunch of the national media came to see me because I had been covering the story since the inception. Philip Williams is the first local reporter to get a look at the indictment. He's surprised to see charges being filed when there's no mention of a body being found. The girl's mother later told me that uh, the prosecutor told her that uh, these people had basically ground up the body and disposed of it. You know, I mean, I guess just made basically nothing out of it. There's talk of an overzealous outside prosecutor having it in for the sergeant and coercing some of the kids they had brought in to point the finger at him, maybe fabricate stories of a cult and rituals. Seven others charged in the case, members of the Kerr family and others, don't have a great reputation in town. There's reports of Sergeant Brown seen talking to them. James Brown and the Kerrs had been seen multiple times talking through a vehicle from, you know, so this is details that, that Joe Henry and, you know, other people had told me, but are seen talking to each other. And, but they can't answer any why. Like, they say that they never saw each other. It's it's really an odd situation. But, yeah, they were involved, rumored to be involved in a satanic cult and just engaged in violent things. And child molestation was, you know, something that they even was admitted in some of those videos and those interviews um, with some of the family members. And they were charged with, uh, I think many of them were charged with, I think, sexually abusing children was a part of their cult. This Gilmer resident claims she saw Sergeant Brown and the Kerrs firsthand. I saw a police car, a Gilmer police car, parked over in the Vingos parking lot with Geneva Kerr's truck. And they were in a position where they were I, talking. No one ever got out of the vehicles, but I knew the truck, and of course anybody knows the police department cars and everything, but I could not identify them actually uh, in the, you know, I would see them get walking into the building together as though they'd known each other their whole lives and all of that. Talking and chatting, laughing together? Yeah, like they, you know, like they were friends and all that, but you know, this was before 
anything you know about Kelly Wilson or any of that came out. It's starting to sound like guilt by association, but there's no word on any proof. Nothing that puts the sheriff at the scene of the crime, let alone taking part in satanic rituals. And then, two months after charges are filed against the Kerrs and Sergeant Brown, there's a press conference. The spotlight has never been brighter on the little town of Gilmer. I have a short statement for you about what transpired this morning. The state of Texas today moved for dismissal of capital murder, aggravated kidnapping, and aggravated sexual assault charges against eight defendants in the Kelly Wilson case. The state has dismissed these charges because the evidence against these defendants is presently insufficient to support further prosecution at this time. The investigation into the disappearance of Kelly Wilson is not over. General Morales and the prosecutors and investigators of the Attorney General's office, with the assistance of Mr. Scott Lyford, are fully committed to continuing this investigation. The state intends to proceed with the prosecution of the still pending sexual abuse cases against the remaining defendants. The murder charges against everybody, like the, the Kurz and James Brown, were all dropped two months after. So after those allegations you know, were made. And there it was. Sergeant Brown goes from being a pariah, a cult member, a killer, to being cleared of all charges. There's simply no physical evidence that Sergeant Brown or anyone had been involved in a satanic cult. The allegations, the charges, the shocking details of rituals and abuse, and then the killing of Kelly Wilson, it all vanishes as quickly as it appeared. That's Are you out to get Mr. Brown? The prosecutor who filed the charges is asked about why the indictment came down in the first place. I, I didn't know James Brown before I came to Gilmer. I don't have any reason to be out to get him. Did you ever threaten Sergeant Brown? No. Chief McAllister just said in the hallway that you did. I, I don't believe I did. But for Sergeant Brown, the damage is done. He stepped back once he had to go through all this. I mean, just trying, just trying to explain, you know, my, you know. His higher-ups, you know, my sergeant, is even being accused of anything like that. He didn't get back. I never thought for a second that Brown had anything to do with it. I had been dealing with him on this case for two years. It was inconceivable to me that he had anything to do with it. I think it was the morning after he was charged that I talked to the police chief, Al McAllister, at the time on the phone. And he said, Philip, he didn't have anything more to do with it than you did. I said, I know it. It was inconceivable to me that he had anything to do with it. He still owns his, his trailer uh, at this point in time. Uh, he's in the process of trying to sell a small parcel of land that he owns. Uh, he and his family are in financial uh, dire straits at this point in time. The rest of the Kerr family who were indicted with Sergeant Brown were cleared on charges related to Kelly Wilson, but they will still have to answer for other horrific crimes. We believe we do have a strong case of child molestation. We are pursuing that civil case, and we will be going to court to try to terminate parental rights, and we do think we have strong evidence. What they did, just the fact that it was, you know, not just sexually abusing, you know, one child, it's, it's children, and it's, you know, violent acts that not, that's not something normal for a whole family to be involved in. They were found guilty of something, but it wasn't Kelly's murder. One crime is exposed, another one goes cold. Sergeant Brown, the man dedicated to finding out what happened, fades out of the picture. But this story isn't over. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. 
As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. Kelly Wilson did have a boyfriend when she disappeared. Naturally, he was questioned about the crime. Over time, police decide his story doesn't really add up. The guy she was dating, his name's Chris Denton. And at the time when she went missing, you know, he was known to be hot-tempered and had a hot head, and he was just an angry person. And the police, I mean, the police looked at, you know, looked into him, obviously, uh, but didn't find any evidence. Denton, uh, who is now dead, was publicly named by the district attorney at the time as the chief suspect in the case, but never charged, never charged. Uh, he has since died young in his 30s. And there's another name in all this, the boyfriend's cousin, Brent Ward. He testifies that on the night Kelly disappeared, he and Chris Denton were riding around in a pickup truck together. He eventually fails a polygraph and in 1995 goes to trial. Ward was charged with perjury for lying about the case. The jury convicted Ward of one of the perjury charges but acquitted him of the other. Ward is sentenced to three years behind bars, but the sideshow of an overzealous outside prosecutor coming in and the stories of satanic ritual, that all dies down. The press leave town. Gilmer gets back to normal. But Kelly's body isn't found. The trail is as cold as it was in January 1992 when she disappeared. Kelly's video store manager, Joe Henry, watches the spotlight fade away. It was so messed up when this other stuff happened that she was just pushed away and she was forgotten. And it became this... It, it became so much more about, you know, this this police, you know, the law enforcement being indicted rather than looking for this girl. I mean, her body has not been found. They have no, they have nothing. You know, it, it was more about the controversy and the cults and the cops being convicted and, and so little on this missing girl. But like a lot of cases where someone just vanishes, there are tips and sightings. Any information that they do get, they do look into. So they still look, it's open. It's an open case, but it, it has gone cold and, and it, they don't have any answers. And they have a ton of boxes just full of, full of interviews, full of information. And, and it's, they, they still have, they can't go anywhere. You know, she's nowhere to be found. In 2004, almost 10 years after the swirl of satanic cults and rituals sweep through town, Kelly's boyfriend, when she disappeared, Chris Denton, dies of cancer. There were rumors that he had made, a, you know, a confession on his deathbed, but but didn't didn't give details. So there weren't there weren't really, you know, there weren't really any details to to see if that was true. So any story of a deathbed confession hasn't been confirmed. It's still just a rumor. Joe Henry, Kelly's manager, the night she vanished, still lives and works in Gilmer to this day. He own, I mean, he owns a, a little burger shop, and. It didn't seem to, you know, affect his life like it did Sergeant Brown's or the Kerr's. Lexi Hudson and her colleagues at CBS 19 in Tyler, Texas, still look into the case from time to time, going back to Gilmer, walking trails and searching through overgrown bushes where police searched long ago. Mark Case is sworn in as Gilmer police chief in 2014. Leads still come into his office. Um, we still get leads coming in on the Kelly Wilson case. Uh, we do follow-ups. Um, we probably average two to three leads a, a year on the case. Um, some of the leads that we've gotten um, have led us to Arkansas uh, to interview suspect or people that's up there 
on the case. Uh, we take the information that they give, we come back, we follow up with the information. We will continue to keep it open. We will continue to work the case as the leads come in. Um, so far, the information we've gotten has not panned out. People's lives were turned upside down because of this case, and no one has any answers. If you dig into this case enough, you get the sense that someone knows what happened, someone who's still alive. Reporter Philip Williams has his own theories about what happened to Kelly. Do I think I know who did it? Yes. For certain reasons, I would prefer not to reveal that. But I have long thought that I know who did it. And whether he did or not, I can't say for sure. But yes, I do think I know who did it. I would just like to know what happened to her. It may be judgment day when Christ comes back before we do, but I'd sure like to know before I die what happened to that girl. So Jessica, this is an open case. Kelly Wilson has never been found, whether she was murdered or could possibly be alive. It sounds like some people have an idea, but we don't know officially what happened. And, and a lot of the people involved in this case are now gone, right? Yeah, I mean, her boyfriend, Chris Denton, who we talk about, uh, who was you know looked at by police, he died uh, at a young age. Uh, her mother, actually, Kelly Wilson's mother, my understanding is that she moved away from town, so she's no longer there. She had a stepfather, I'm not sure, uh, of his whereabouts. And then a lot of people who were, you know, a member of the police force at the time, certainly Sergeant James Brown is no longer in the picture. Uh, it, it, it is a an open case. And as the new police chief states, they follow up on leads, but there's really a lot of people that are associated with this case originally are, are no longer around. Joe Henry being the exception, the guy that we talked to that we hear from in this episode and who still owns a burger shop in town. All right, Jessica, I want to turn now to another case uh, before we leave our listeners this week and another podcast done by uh, one of our stations, CARE 11 in Minneapolis. And it's the story of a young woman who I'm imagining most, if not almost all of our listeners, will have heard the story of Jamie Kloss. I'm joined by Lou Raguse. He's a reporter at CARE 11 in Minneapolis, the NBC affiliate. Lou, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Will. And you had a pretty close connection to individuals involved in this story, including the suspect. Is that right? Yeah. So uh, even before that, I I ended up being the first reporter to get an interview with the Kloss family, the Kloss side of the family. And they, at this point, hadn't hadn't talked at all. And so it, it, it really kind of brought the story to a new level when this interview came out. And then later down the road, the suspected killer at the time sent me a letter from jail. Well, Lou, let me take a step back. And when this news all happened, when we first heard about a young girl who was missing, her parents had been murdered at their home. How did this resonate in your local community and in the area? Well, it, it Barron, Wisconsin is a small town and it's, uh, you know, about almost two hours from the Twin Cities, but it is in our viewing area. And so it's this terrible crime that's that's far enough away that you, you kind of, you, you feel a little bit of a disconnect until you're there in the town, right? So from the newsroom, you don't really know what to think. When there's a, a missing girl, a lot of times cynical nature might lead you to think that it's a runaway type situation. But in this, it was different because her parents were murdered and the police just didn't seem to know or have any clue what happened. So it was this major story where you were almost expecting the other shoe to drop in the next couple of days when you find out what happened to the girl. But it just kept going on and on and on. And what can you tell us about tips and clues and sightings of, of Jamie Kloss that came in along the way? Almost right away. And uh, I, I do go into this in in the second episode. 
there was a tip from Miami, Florida, and it was a tip that Jamie was spotted in the city of Miami in a black Ford Explorer with Wisconsin plates. And the tip came from the Miami, Florida Police Department on their Twitter page. And so all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, that almost sounds like a, like a runaway situation. Maybe she had something to do with it or something like that. But right away, the sheriff got ahead of it and said, you know, any tip that comes from outside of this podium is not credible. And that tip is not credible. So it was really bizarre that a, such a big police department in the United States would put something like that out there. But that was really the only major clue that came in those early days. Other than that, it's just like, we don't have anything. We, we wanted them to release the 911 call so you could at least get a sense of of what was said on the 911 call from the house the night of the crime, because we had nothing. And what did you learn about Jamie Kloss as you got into the story? We, we, know, we knew she was very young. She had disappeared. It was quite a mystery. Yeah, so she's 13 years old, and right from the very beginning, anybody who actually knew her emphasized how shy she is. And I think that they were kind of doing that to, you know, to say, you know, we don't think that she had anything to do with this. She, she is so shy and she loved her mom. She was kind of like when she was younger, you know, clinging to her mom's leg like a, a child like that. And then now that she's older, she and her mom did everything together. And the other aspect of talking about how shy she was, was a worry that people had that, you know, she's not this girl that you would imagine fighting free from an abductor and escaping on her own. So people were really worried that her personality made her kind of a, a prime victim if if she fell into this somehow. So as with any investigation where there's someone who is missing and there was a crime, uh, that person is looked at, investigated. Uh, it sounds like early on, any theories surrounding Jamie as being someone responsible were debunked. Yeah, and although it's debunked with social media, the world is so different right now, rumors persisted online, and it was really extremely painful for the family to have to endure uh, people suspecting that somebody in the family had something to do with it or Jamie had something to do with it. So that didn't really ever end, although the sheriff um, came out and said that I don't think that there's no evidence that it had anything like that happening here. Uh, But the problem was, since he didn't know what happened, he couldn't definitively rule anything out either. So then it really sounds like there were two things going on. People assumed, at least those close to her, didn't just assume, but knew she didn't have anything to do with it. But there was also concern that she was shy enough, wouldn't wouldn't be able to escape from an abductor. Yeah, that, that was the sense that people had. And then when you add to that, the sheriff made it very clear that this was a very violent, bloody crime scene. And so she, she was obviously taken from something that was extremely violent and clearly would be in danger if she's still alive at that point. And that's a big part of the story is that the community of Barron, Wisconsin, never gave up hope that she is alive. And it makes you realize how cynical you might become when you're a reporter, how cynical society is in general, when people just tend to assume that this is not going to have a happy ending. Lou, let me ask what people will learn in the podcast 88 Days that they don't already know, maybe haven't already heard about this case. Well, really, that this is a story of hope and when you look at it, for me, looking in hindsight and then presenting it to you in real time, it does have a different edge to it than even it did as the, the facts were being reported at the time. Because now I know what was true and what wasn't in hindsight, and I'm able to highlight certain things differently. And I think you really see how your spirits can be as low as they can be, but it's still worth 
having hope that this can have a happy ending. And I think that's something that whether you've heard of this story or not, you can really get out of it as you listen all the way through. The highs are as high as they can be and the lows are as low as they can be. And it's rare that a story is like that. Lou, I won't ask you to give us all the details of the correspondence you eventually had with the main suspect in this case, but tell us what that was like actually hearing from him. Well, at the time, we really thought that there was no end in sight for this case. And when he sent me that letter, the contents of the letter completely shook up the case. It changed everybody's expectation of what was going to happen moving forward from there. And so it wasn't just like a stereotypical, creepy letter from the bad guy from jail to a reporter. It had a lot of real breaking news inside of it. And so that's what made it such a big news story the day that I got the letter. It wasn't just sensationalism. Lou, I know you've covered news for a long time, and you certainly worked on this case for for many, many hours. What, What do you think people will hear in this that maybe they don't hear on the nightly newscast. Well, I kept all of our footage that we that we gathered along the way covering the story, and we covered the story so comprehensively that I think compared to a lot of true crime stories, here you really get a lot of empathy and a lot of uh, display of the human condition. And you really kind of feel that you're with these people and you get a real sense of the ups and downs and the emotions that they have along the way in a way that you don't usually get when you're reviewing a crime after the fact. All right, Lou, thanks so much for talking to us. And where can people learn more about the podcast and you? Well, we have the website up right now, 88dayspodcast.com. You can follow me on Twitter, at Lou Raguse. That's L-O-U-R-A-G-U-S-E. All right, thanks, Lou. All right, thanks a lot, Will. Lou Raguse, thanks for talking to us again. uh, Lou at CARE 11. The podcast is 88 Days, the Jamie Kloss Story. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, the, the trailer is certainly available and episodes all rolling out soon, if not already. Jessica, that's uh, that's it for this week. We'll be back next week with another story and another case. Where can people find us? You can find Vault Studios on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And you can find True Crime Chronicles also on Facebook. All right, Jessica, thanks a lot. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks a lot, Will. Will.